All right, if we can start gathering back together. Did the rapture happen like every <laughs> yes. I hope not. We're doing an eschatology series for Advent, so you know we'll talk about all that stuff. We'll be fine. It'll be good. It'll be <laughs> even more important now that it's gone. Uh, I'm going to ask Ashley to come up and read our scripture passage for this evening. Corinthians 5, 9 through 20. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we, um, as we uh, open up your word, as we begin to um, see what you have for us um, this evening in 2 Corinthians, we ask, God, that you would, um, through your Holy Spirit, shine light on um, what we're reading. God, that you would illuminate this text in our souls, in our hearts, in our minds, um, that we would see it um, with... Um, sanctified eyes, um, that we would feel it with sanctified hearts, that we would understand it um, with sanctified mi- sanctified minds, um, and that these things would be applied to our lives, that we would live them out, and that they would not just be empty words um, that we store away and believe, but words that we act on and live our lives according to. Uh, we need you to work in our lives for that to take place, God. We need you to um, we need your Holy Spirit to move, and so we pray that um, you would do that. 
God, we, we ask as um, we look out around Blount County, um, we know that we are a community in need of revival. Uh, even though we are in the midst of the Bible Belt, um, God, even though there are a plethora of churches on every corner in Blount County, uh, we know that most of our neighbors do not know your son, Jesus Christ. Um, and many of the ones who do um, are not living in ways that honor him um, or place uh, him as a priority uh, in their lives, God. Um, we ask for revival. We ask that you would um, bring upon our community um, a, a return um, to Jesus Christ, a return to his church, um, and that, God, you would stir up um, the people of Blount County, that you would use um, your, your gospel-preaching churches in Blount County to do that, and that through all those means you would draw people unto yourself. Um, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, we got a long way to go in a short time to get there. These are man, these are tight sermons. Like I don't know how to put them all in. Uh, it's it's to get it all in there. So the Great Awakening, uh, which is what we've been talking about, right? This All Saints series, the Great Awakening, um, marked the beginning of what is sort of a unique flavor you could say, in Christianity, um, called evangelicalism, okay? Um, a, a particular kind of, of American uh, Christianity, all right? Um, evangelicalism is, is such a broad term in our current culture that it's almost meaningless, right? Everybody says they're an evangelical. It, it's not a very helpful term anymore just when we use it generically or you see it in newspapers and, and things like that, political um, connections and things like that. It doesn't mean much. But historically, there has been a widely accepted definition put forth by a historian named David Bebbington um, of what an evangelical is. Like, what are the characteristics of evangelicalism? And he gives four that have been pretty well accepted. And they are, one, biblicism, meaning you have a high regard for the scriptures, two, crucocentrism, which means you put Jesus' cross and crucifixion and its saving effects at the center of something, right? Okay, both of those characteristics are shared by the reformers. Those are both things that they emphasize too. And then you have two other things, conversionism, the idea that um, human beings need to be converted. We need to be um, changed to 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 come to God. That's a big thing, and that's what we talked about last week with regeneration and the new birth. And then a third one that is sort of an odd word because of the context it has for our modern culture, but activism. And what, what, what they mean by that is the belief that your faith should influence your life and especially your public life, right? Like how you live out your, your life, okay? And so we're kind of going to talk about it next week when we talk about Wesley. We've already talked about conversionism in the context of um, uh, last week with regeneration, but there's another piece to conversionism, and that is um, the gospel call, evangelism, right? The, 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 the message of the gospel going out and being believed. Um, and so today we're going to talk about um, that very thing. We're going to talk about evangelism, um, both personal evangelism and uh, evangelistic kind of preaching, right? The scripture calls us to be proclaimers of the good news, the evangel, okay, right? That, that, I, that, that word means the good news. That's where we get our word evangelism. And there is probably no greater example in evangelical history, certainly, but possibly in all of church history of evangelism and evangelism, evangelistic preaching than this person who we're looking at um, as an illustration tonight of these things, and that's George Whitfield. 
So George Whitfield was born December 27, 1714 in Gloucester, England. Um, his parents were innkeepers, and he had a childhood that was kind of a difficult one. He was the sixth of the the youngest of six children. His father died when he was two. Uh, his mother remarried unhappily and was later divorced, um, which again was was not super common in that day. I mean, it, it, it's it's probably more common than we think um, looking back, but but still that was a, that was an issue back then. Um, he was not from a particularly Christian family. Um, he talks about how he spent his early childhood years basically running around the city they lived in, stealing, getting in fights, you know, um, just kind of living um, a, 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 a godless sort of delinquent kind of life. Um, but interestingly, his real love when he was a kid was the theater. He loved the theater, and he uh, he loved the oratory of it. He loved the the uh, the, the speaking and and the grandeur of all these things, right? And and he participated in it and was good at it. And he was sort of already, as a young teenager, was known for his his voice and his oratory skill on these things. Um, he also had a keen mind, and so he was somebody who began to study Greek and Latin, which was kind of your entrance exam to get into college back, in, back then, and he was proficient in those things. So he entered Oxford University in England in 1732. Um, coming from a poor family, he didn't have the means to pay his tuition, and so he became what was called a servitor, um, which was basically the lowest rank of undergraduate, right? It's a class society. And so basically he was given free tuition if he would be a servant to other undergraduates, essentially. And so he would, you know, tutor them, help them bathe and get dressed, clean their rooms, carry their books, um, you know, do things like that. Even though he was, he was a student also, like he was just, there was two guys, but one was from a higher class and one was from a lower class in that culture. Um, as that first year of school started, being at this school, he started to, to feel the weight of his own sin and, and to feel um, the guilt that came along with living a life apart from God. And so he's tried to make himself right with God um, by living a morally rigorous life. Okay, And as part of that, um, he met a guy named Charles Wesley. Charles is the brother of John Wesley, who we're going to talk about next week. Um, and along with 10 other guys, they joined a a group that they called the Holy Club, which just is funny in itself, okay? And they had this thing called the Holy Club. And basically what it was, was it was a, they would probably define it differently, but it was a small group Bible study and accountability group that got together and worshiped and served together. And that's what it was. It was these, these 12 or 13 guys who did life together the way we would kind of say now. Um, and, and they were, they were, they were known for being, um, very serious, very dedicated, very, um, stern in their discipline in terms of their, the way they were pursuing God. And other people made fun of them and called them method because of the method that they were going through. They were like, they made fun of them and said, those Methodist guys over there. Okay. And guess what? It was out of that method of spiritual discipline that the Methodist church arose. And so they sort of took that derogatory term that they were made fun of with and said, we're going to own this. Um, and it became the Methodist church. And basically the two Wesleys along with Whitfield are considered the, the, the fathers, um, the founders of the Methodist church. However, even at this point, Whitfield was not regenerate. Okay. And he recognizes this, um, in his writings and, and later things, even though he was Seeking after God, he was not regenerate. He was not a saved person. Um, he fell ill um, at school, and during his convalescence, um, he read a book by a guy named Henry Scogel, 
who was a Puritan writer, called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And it was an evangelistic kind of book. And upon reading it, Whitfield understood the gospel. And in understanding the gospel, turned to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance for his, own, his salvation, right? Recognizing the only hope he had was for Jesus to save him. And so he said uh, in one of his journals, he wrote, I realize that I must be born again or be damned. And then he said, I never knew true religion until I read that book. Even though he had done all these things to try to follow God rightly, he knew that his heart was not where it should be. And so following his conversion, he started passionately preaching about this newfound faith that he had. So Whitfield was ordained after he received his bachelor degree, and he immediately began preaching. Um, but instead of doing what most guys did when they got out of seminary, right, instead of taking a parish, instead of taking a church and becoming the pastor there, Whitfield began to be an itinerant preacher. He just went around preaching at different places, uh, and he was an evangelist, going around and, and, and giving evangelistic kind of sermons. And in doing so, he embarked on a mi ministry that would single him out as one of the greatest, if not the greatest and most prolific preachers of all time. All right? Um, some of the greatest preachers in history, J.C. Ryle, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, all look back to Whitfield and say that attest to his greatness and the, and the singularity of his ministry. Um, John Newton, who was the uh, pastor who wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace, all right? John Newton said this. He said, as a preacher... If you were to ask me who the second best preacher I'd ever heard was, I would be at a loss. But there is no question about who the first is. Mr. Whitfield far exceeds every other man of our time. Okay, uh, Newton lived at the same time. Uh, another contemporary, Augustus Toplady, who is a um, hymn writer, said he is the most useful minister that has perhaps been produced since the days of the apostles. Um, he was a larger-than-life personality, all right? He was literally America's first celebrity. Um, he was a cultural hero. He was a uniting figure. Uh, estimates are that 80% of the people in the colonies heard him preach at some time. 80% of the people who lived here heard him preach personally at some time. Um, you all know who Benjamin Franklin is, right? Um, Whitfield and Franklin were actually friends and partners in the publishing business because Franklin would publish Whitfield's sermons um, and, and give them out. The interesting thing is we all know who Franklin is, but most people don't know who Whitfield is, even though Whitfield was probably the more known person, the bigger celebrity. He was probably more famous in the Western world than anybody except royalty during, the, the, during his lifetime. And yet again, most people don't know his name. Whitfield, by many estimations, is the most neglected person in church history. Um, he is called the father of evangelicalism, right? Evangelicalism being one of the most dominating cultural influences in Western civilization, and yet most people have never heard of George Whitfield. Um, his preaching is, by some people's estimation, again, single-handedly responsible for keeping America and Britain from falling into the same situation that France did in their revolution, right? France had a revolution, and it was bloody, ugly, you know, people being beheaded in the streets kind of thing. America had a revolution. It didn't happen that way. England never had a revolution um, in the same time. And most people say the reason is is because of the great change that took place in people's hearts because of Whitfield's preaching and, in general, the Great Awakening. Um, he doesn't, even though his output is phenomenal, um, 
He doesn't have denominations named after him like Luther does. He doesn't have theologies named after him like Calvin does. In many ways, he exemplified the reformational saying, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. All right? That, that became sort of his legacy. Now, obviously, if you're somebody who likes church history and you likes the history of preaching, you've probably heard of Whitfield. But I think the case is, is that most average everyday people have never heard his name and will never hear his name because the books that they read, the secular histories, ignore characters like Whitfield. Um, that passion and calling to preach the gospel, that was the singular focus of his life. Evangelism and evangelistic preaching um, stands out as, again, one of those things that the Great Awakening pushed forward and re, um, re-emphasized um, more than even other generations had done. And because and this is the reason why. We talked about regeneration last week. Conversion, salvation, recognition that we have to be saved, that always comes through the gospel call, right? The word of God goes out from people's mouths, from books that people have written or whatever. The gospel calls goes out, and that is the delivery method, you could say, for the regeneration that we talked about last week. And that gospel call going out, the delivery message of the gospel, uh, method of the gospel call is people, right? God has called us to evangelize. And through our telling the word of God to people and the gospel call, then God uses that gospel call to regenerate people, okay? And so they're all connected. James 1, 8, or 118. It's, we talked about it last week. Of his own will, he brought us forth, right? Of his own will, he did that. But how? By the word of truth, James says. Romans 10, how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, right? That's, that's right behind Romans chapter 9, like we said a minute ago. This passage about God's sovereignty and election and regeneration and stuff. And then the next chapter it says, but you know what? Nobody's ever going to have these things unless somebody goes out and tells them. Unless a person goes out and preaches or, or shares, nobody's ever going to know the gospel. And so that's what we're talking about um, today. Um, and we're going to look at Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to it. And this, the, the, we're going to go quickly through the section because there's a lot to it. Um, but we're talking about um, evangelism um, and the call that God has given to us to evangelize, right? So why should we evangelize? If God is sovereign, if God's going to do what God's going to do, then why should we even bother? That's the question that often comes up after we talk about pre, uh, regeneration and, and election and things like that, right? Well, Paul gives us some of the reasons right here in this passage. So starting in verse 9, he says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That is to please God. Okay, so what's the first reason why we evangelize? We evangelize to please the Father, all right, to make the Father happy. Our lives are about pleasing God. Realize that at a core, basic level, any action, thought, or word, or desire that you have that doesn't have the intention of pleasing God is by definition sin, right? Even when you're doing right things for the wrong motives, it's sin, right? The whole center of our lives is to please God. God says, this is love for God. This is love for me, that you would keep my commandments. And so to please God ought to be the desire of our hearts. And if there is no other reason to evangelize, even if there was no other reason to evangelize, that would still be enough. Because he told me to, and I want to make him happy, right? That would be reason enough to evangelize. Even if God came to us and said, hey, by the way, 
your evangelism is worthless and nothing's ever going to happen through it and I'm not even going to use it as a means, but I still want you to do it because it makes me happy, then that would be enough reason right there. That's not what he says. He says that he is going to use it. He says that it is going to be the means by which um, the gospel is spread. But even if he said that, we would still just say, I want to make God happy and I'm doing what he has called me to do. And so that's the first reason that we see there. Whitfield had a rock-solid faith that God indeed was looking down on him and was taking pleasure in his life in terms of um, him going out and, and, and preaching the gospel, right? He was, he was not a speculative philosopher, okay? He didn't take the things that are in the Word and go, yes, I believe them, you know, on an intellectual level or whatever. He knew them to be true because he had experienced, he had had an encounter with the living Christ, Okay, And that set up this passion in his heart to please God. There's this great story. Uh, so the first part of the story doesn't have to do with Whitfield. So once upon a time, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the head of the Anglican Church, um, he was talking to an actor. And he said to the actor, how is it that when you guys get up there and act, like you can cause people to feel emotion and like, man, people are just moved by the things that you say. How do you guys do that? And the actor said to the Archbishop, the reason is, is because we talk about imaginary things like they're true. You guys talk about true things like they're imaginary, right? That's a burn, okay? Um, a really good burn. A, a reversal of that happened in the life of Whitfield. Once upon a time, he was preaching in Scotland, and the Enlightenment philosopher David Hume, who was a secularist and an atheist, um, came to listen to Whitfield preach. And, and Hume, if you know anything about philosophy, and he's a big deal in, in sort of uh, Enlightenment secular philosophy. And he came to hear Whitfield preach. And somebody recognized him in the, in the audience. And they turned to him and they said, Why, Mr. Hume, I didn't think you believed in the gospel. And Hume turned to the guy and said, I don't, but he does. And that was, that was what he said. He came to listen to Whitfield because he was like, I don't believe any stu this stuff, but that guy believes it. He believes what he's saying, and it's interesting to go listen to somebody who is saying things that they actually believe to be the way the world works. That was the assurance, the, 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 uh, the confidence that Whitfield had in what he was preaching, that he was saying these things to please the Father. But you know what? At the same time, even though he was doing this to please the Father, he was also doing it out of fear of his king and judge. So look at verse 10. So Paul goes on and he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You and I will stand before the judgment seat of God one day and give an answer for our lives. Every single one of us. Now you might say, Ash, I thought I was saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You are. All right? That is how we are saved. And yet at the same time, we will stand before God and give an answer for how we have lived our lives. Not a judgment unto salvation, but a judgment of our works. All right? 1 Corinthians 3 gives us a pretty clear picture of this. That we will, our works will be judged as one walking through the fire. And the things that are worthy will last, and the things that aren't worthy will be burned away. We will answer for everything that we've ever said and done and thought. God is a loving Father, a loving Savior, but He is no less a King and a Judge. And so First Peter tells us this, reminds us that if we call Him Father, 
who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time in exile. Right? So Peter's recognizing, he's saying, man, God is our father. We call the judge father. But let's not forget that he's also the judge, right? That he judges impartially and that he is going to look on our lives one day and we hope to have an answer for that. We don't want to stand before God ashamed for these things. Whitfield preached out of that reverent fear, at least in part, because he recognized that we are appointed once to die and after that to face the judgment. He knew that he would stand before God one day and give an answer for his life. He also knew that he had Jesus Christ and that ultimately he would be saved because of that. But he also knew that many of the people that he spoke to on a regular basis did not. right? And so it was not only a recognition of God as judge in his life for his works, but it was also a recognition of God as judge in the lives of people who did not have Jesus Christ. right? And so that pushed him to evangelize. There is a palpable, when you read his sermons and stuff like that, when you look at accounts of Whitfield's preaching, there is a palpable earnestness about his preaching, right? He would get up in the pulpit, and in an era where everybody was just very prim and proper and like monotone, people would get up and read uh, verbatim manuscript philosophical kind of musings about things or whatever. Uh, Whitfield would get into the pulpit, and he would he would stomp, and he would yell, and he had this booming voice, and he would... Uh, he would be emotionally um, affected by the crowd and the, and the sermon and things like that. He would weep sometimes in the middle of sermons and just sort of uncontrollably because he recognized the stakes of what was going on, right? And it wasn't just his theatrical um, background, right? Some people have accused Whitfield of that, that, oh, man, he's just getting up there and putting on a show um, because of his background. No, he was taking that those th- that energy but applying it to something true, kind of like the, the, the archbishop quote, right? He was talking about true things, and he was going to speak of them as if they were true, with emotion and fire and energy and passion, We are far too casual when it comes to the souls of other people, are we not? We are far too casual looking at other people's souls, looking at their eternities and thinking, you know what, I should just be, you know, cool with this and and it's no big deal and, and I'll take my time and whatever. Whitfield didn't have any time for that, right? He knew the stakes that were involved with people's hearts and souls, that they would stand before God one day and so he was passionate about evangelism. And that brings us to a little interlude that I'm going to hit real quickly, um, Paul, in verses sort of the second half of 11 and 13, um, we're not going to read it again, but he's basically saying this. He's basically saying everybody gets scared about evangelism, and Paul is saying, who cares what people think, okay? Um, I, I won't take the time to go back and read that section, but basically Paul is saying, look, in his ministry there were haters. There were people who looked on his ministry and said, oh, you're doing it. You're not very impressive, Paul. You're doing this for the wrong reasons. You're just trying to get power over people. You're just doing this for whatever. And Paul said, I know my conscience is clear, and I don't care what the haters say about me, right? I don't care if they see me as a weirdo or too zealous or or whatever. If my conscience is clear before God, then I have no fear um, speaking to other people, right? I'm not worried about what other people have to say. And Whitfield didn't either, all right? We have this picture in our head of colonial America, like everybody was just these, like, Jesus-loving folks. It was a conservative, Christian, puritanical kind of world. Like, people loved Jesus. They didn't. 
They were just like people from all over history, right? Um, Whitfield would go and preach, and he would endure hecklers. People would show up at his services just to yell in the background and things like that. They would stand outside the windows of church and, and yell obscenities and things like that to try to drown him out. Um, people threw rotten food at him. Um, people threw dead cats at him, all right? Um, they would bring dead cats and throw them up at the lectern. Um, he was physically attacked. There were assassination attempts on, on Whitfield's life, right? Um, because he was, he was messing with the status quo. But, but Whitfield was undeterred. He didn't care that what these other people thought um, because of that great reverence, right? Um, recognizing what he was doing for God. But not just a great reverence for God, but also a great love for people. And that's what we see in verse 14. Christ's love compels us to, the, to evangelism. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, constrains us, rules over us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Right? So what is that saying? It's saying Jesus has sacrificed his life for others. And that love that Jesus had... It, when we recognize it, it compels us, right? It's a great word. It constrains us. Like we are, we are, think about the idea of something being, um, you being compelled to something, right? It's sort of like I thought of the illustration when, when you fall in love, um, are, is, is that by your will or not by your will? And the answer is kind of both, right? Like all of a sudden you just have to. You, 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 something changes in you and you want to. The love of Christ compels us to evangelism, right? It's not something we do against our will. It's something that should work in conjunction with our will, right? We just, all of a sudden, God has shown us such great love. We must extend that love to other people by telling them about Jesus Christ. If the gospel is a small thing in our lives, it will be a small thing to tell other people about the gospel. But if the gospel is central earth-shattering kind of truth in our lives, then how can we not tell people about it? It will compel us to speak. Again, that compulsion um, led to an innovation in preaching that maybe seems kind of passe to us now, but it was a big deal back then, and that was open-air preaching. That was one of the big things that popped up during the Great Awakening, is people started preaching outside to crowds of people, okay? And you might go, man, who cares? I've been to like a bunch of Christian festivals and, and things. We've, I've, that's happened a bunch of times. It didn't in this day and age, right? Preaching happens in a church, right? You can't preach outside. you got to preach in a church, okay? That's, that's just the way people thought. And the problem was is Whitfield wasn't welcomed in lots of pulpits, because they said, we don't like what you're preaching. We don't like this whole thing about you having to be regenerated and that many of us aren't believers yet. And they said, we don't like that. And so he was kept out of a lot of pulpits all over the places he preached. And so what did he do? He took to the fields. He would find an open field somewhere, maybe on a hillside. Maybe they would build sort of a art, like a temporary kind of podium and lectern or whatever. And he would preach out in the open, in the rain, in the cold, in the snow, in the sun. It didn't matter. Two crowds of 5,000, 10,000, 15,000. Franklin has an account where he estimates the crowd to have been around 18,000 that, that Whitfield is preaching to with no mics, right? Nothing to help him. He's preaching to a crowd of 18,000 people and, and 
Franklin was basically saying, and I feel like you could pretty much hear him and understand him no matter where in the crowd that you were standing. God used those natural gifts that he had, right? Those, that, that, that booming voice and that oratory um, skill um, as a means, because you know what? When you're in a room this size, you don't have to have a huge voice. When you're in a normal church that's been built acoustically, the church helps your voice. When you're standing in an open field, you got no help, right? But yet you need somebody who has a voice like this. Crowds came, believers, lost people, curious people, every station, every walk of life showed up to hear Whitfield preach. And that is another interlude in verse 16 and 17. And I'll just kind of, again, we'll, we'll move past it quick, but this is what he's basically saying. He's saying, the gospel changes not only our relationship to God, but it changes our relationship to other people. We don't see people simply um, through worldly categories anymore. That's what Paul is getting at in that section. Um, you may have an annoying coworker, You may have a jerky boss. You may have a weird neighbor. You may have a crazy relative, rich, poor, black, white, outsider, insider. Paul is saying when it comes to evangelism now, we don't think in those categories anymore. We see people... We might have regarded them according to the flesh once upon a time, even how we regarded Jesus according to the flesh once upon a time, but no longer. We don't see people in those categories anymore. We see them as those who need Jesus Christ. Whitfield, again, was an exemplar of this. He preached to the aristocracy. He preached to commoners, rich, poor. Um, he was not an abolitionist. Okay, He was somebody who, in his theological position, approved of slavery. However, he also preached to... Um, uh, groups of slaves when he was in the United States, specifically to slaves, because he said these people need the gospel too. Um, they may not be the color that people say they should be or the class that people say they should be, but they need the gospel also, which was taboo, especially in the American South. And so he is actually memorialized in a poem by Phyllis Wheatley, who, who was the first African-American woman to be published in the United States. And she wrote a poem because she heard um, Whitfield preach at some point and wrote about um, Whitfield's preaching. He understood that the gospel call is supposed to go out to all people, right? And so, um, so what do we have so far? We said because we, um, because he wants to please God, because there is a fear uh, of God as judge and king. There is a love for people because Christ's love has compelled us. And finally, the last thing we see is because we evangelize because we have a ministry and a mission that God has entrusted us with. Verse 18. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All of us has been, have been given a ministry. That ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. That is, what do you mean by that? In Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of re reconciliation, right? And then, man, this is great. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Man, that is an easy phrase to read past and incredibly heavy if you will stop and think about it for just a second. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Man, that's the message that we have, that, that we go out. And notice that word, man. We don't go out. At, we are going out saying, you are in opposition to God. You sit under God's condemnation world but it doesn't have to be that way. Be reconciled to him. He has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. Be reconciled to God. We have been called to this great calling, this ambassadorship, 
right? That we are, we have a ministry, we have a mission, we have a message of reconciliation that we are bringing to people. And we implore people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled. Um, Christy's got a joke that she, she tells sometimes, which is great. She, she talks about adulting, right? And uh, when you're adulting, like sometimes you'll be standing in a room and something will happen, like an emergency or a crisis or something will break or whatever. And she said, most of the time I look around when something like that happens and I go, who's the adult in the room that will fix this thing, right? Like I need to tell an adult this happened. And then oftentimes she looks and she goes, oh, wait. I'm the adult in the room that needs to, like, I'm the one who people are looking to, to, to deal with this situation, right? I feel like there's a lot of times that we look around at the world around us and, and we see groups of people and we see people out there and we say, you know what? Somebody should really tell them about Jesus. You know, somebody should bring a gospel, um, uh, uh, concept into this thing, right? So people should see things in light of the gospel in this certain situation. If you've ever thought that, the answer is, you're it, okay? Um, that is your job. Ash, I'm not a pastor. You're not, but you're an ambassador. Um, you have been entrusted with this ministry and this um, message and this uh, calling every single one of us had. We are called to go into the world and say, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that's what, what Whitfield did. Um, Again, he recognized this ambassadorial calling, you could say. And, and, and I haven't kind of explained, but, but his, the ministry that he had was, was massive. Um, and, and almost hard for us to, to, to wrap our heads around, okay? 34 years of ministry, 18,000 sermons, all right? So that is three sermons every two days that he preached, okay? Um, three sermons a day was not uncommon. Four, uh, um, or, or three sermons a day was common. Four sermons a day was not uncommon. That didn't include informal talks, like coming into a town and a group of ministers gathering or, or a certain organization asking him to come speak. Um, like I said earlier, 80% of the people in the colonies heard him verbally, like audibly. I mean, they didn't have recordings back then, so obviously that's the case. But they heard him preach. He, it's estimated that he preached to... 10 million people heard him in his 34 years. He made 13 Atlantic crossings um, in his ministry. He spent three years of his life on a boat um, so that he could bring the gospel to the Americas, then to the Caribbean, then to Canada, then back to England, then across to Ireland, then back to England, and back to America, and all these things, right? Because he recognized that as an ambassador of Christ, that didn't mean that uh, we can just sit and do nothing, right? That it might be the case that he is called to go to everybody on earth um, and tell the gospel to them. That he has this great name. Um, he's called by some people the apostle of the British Empire, okay? Which is a great line because that's exactly what he was in many ways. Um, it, it's an interesting stepping stone because this is what you see uniquely, and we're going to probably maybe talk about this next All Saints year. We'll see what happens. There's another reformation that happens after the Great Awakening. This is 1730s, 1740s. When you get to the end of the 1700s, another awakening happens, and that is the missionary movement. And all of a sudden, people start recognizing, man, 
We can't just go to our neighbor. We can't even just go to other people in our country. We can't even just go to places that our country controls and other places in the world. We have to go to all people because many people in the world have no access to the gospel. And what I would say is that Whitfield becomes a beginning of that, right? Whitfield recognizes the need to not just minister here, but to take the gospel to foreign places. Now, he was only kind of foreign, right? Because he was still going to places that spoke the language that he did, and so it was a stepping stone. But 80, 100 years later, there's this explosion where people realize we have to go places where we don't know anybody, and we're not like those people, and they've never seen a a white person or certainly a Christian, and we're going to go there, and we're going to take the gospel to those places too. And so I think he was a beginning of that whole process. Um, I'll, I'll close with this, and it's a great line, because you read about guys like this, and you go, man, Ash, this guy is larger than life. Like, are you saying that I need to be George Whitfield? And the answer is, I'm not. Um, nobody's George Whitfield. Probably nobody's ever going to be George Whitfield. Billy Graham kind of has one of those kind of ministries, right? Is that you look at it and you go, there's not going to be another one of those, right? Um, there are other characters throughout church history who you just look at and you say, that was unusual, okay? Piper has a great quote about this, and, 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 I, and I, it's sort of a theme I think we could take for all of these All Saints sermons. He says, what shall we make of such a man? Neither God nor a goal. He should not be worshipped or envied. He is too small for one, and he is too big for the other. If we worship such men, we are idolaters. If we envy them, we are fools. Mountains are not meant to be envied. They are meant to be marveled at for the sake of their maker. They are mountains of God. We are to benefit from them without craving to be like them. When we learn this, we can relax and enjoy them. Let us be, by the grace of God, all that we can be for the glory of God. But in our smallness, let's not become smaller by envy, but rather larger by humble admiration and gratitude for the gifts of others, right? So what I'm saying is I'm not calling anybody in this room to be the next George Whitfield because you probably won't be, okay? You could be, but you probably won't be. But that's okay because... There is a function of, of the life of these, these great people throughout church history that they are meant to inspire us. They are meant to make us look at our own lives and say, I could do more. I could be following Christ more closely. I have ignored this issue in my life. They're not calling us to be George Whitfield, okay? Um, we're supposed to live lives um, in a way that honors God to the best of our abilities. And that's what I hope we'll do, especially when it comes to evangelism. Um, we want to please God. We're going to have to answer to God for how we've lived our lives. God has shown us such great love. How can we not show that love to other people? And we have a ministry and a calling on our lives to do this. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, it is easy for us to recognize um, how we have fallen short when it comes to evangelism. God, there are so many times, so many places where we have been fearful, um, where we have been negligent, where we have um, been too filled with worry and self-concern to tell people um, the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we look to men like George Whitfield and... um, 
I think we are in awe of them, that people, that we would see these characters who are um, so sold out, um, who have given their lives so wholly over to you and your cause. God, we, we, we want more of that. It is obvious that you specially blessed um, Whitfield. But we pray um, that you would give us a portion um, of his passion, of his love, of his desire for the lost to come know Jesus Christ. God, would you open our eyes to the people who are around us, people who um, need to hear your word, people who are even hungry for your word. God, you say that the field is white unto harvest, but will there be workers um, to bring that harvest in. God, help us to be those harvesters. Help us to be those people um, who are calling um, the lost into your kingdom. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for all your many blessings in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing our closing hymn with us. Mm -hmm.